Good morning, everybody. I'm, I'm glad we're learning that song. Uh, I hope that we're learning the truth of that song, that no matter what it is, Jesus is better. And our song for eternity will be that, Jesus is better. Uh, than everything we have seen, Jesus is better. And I, 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 want, I want my heart to believe that um, when other things uh, seem to be better. Uh, I want to remember that Jesus is always better, right? All right, do you have your Bible this morning? Romans chapter 14 is where you need to go. We've been studying in Romans for quite some time now. Uh, came to an interesting text last week. as We looked at an obstacle uh, to unity in the church, which is also an opportunity for us to exercise true, biblical, godly love for one another. The question was, what do we do when we, as brothers and sisters in Christ, come to different conclusions, have different opinions, develop differing convictions over matters that are secondary? Now, to be clear, we were not and we are not today talking about primary doctrinal matters. We're not talking about things like the exclusivity of Christ. We're not talking about the virgin birth. We're not talking about salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We're not talking about the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture. It's not the kind of matters that we're talking about. We don't come to differing conclusions on those things. Those are not matters of opinion. Nor are we talking about matters of morality where the Bible is absolutely clear. We're not talking about things like adultery and idolatry and gossip and homosexuality and abortion and on and on and on. Those matters are black and white. They're not matters of opinion. They're not matters of conviction or conclusion. Rather, we're talking about matters that are in the gray area, not black and white things. Paul is addressing gray areas in Romans chapter 14, matters of indifference, some scholars say. On these, we must exercise tolerance. The text last week called us not to judge one another or hold each other with contempt. I told you last week in application that we must learn to distinguish between essentials and non-essentials. We must learn to distinguish between what is a black and white issue and what is a gray area issue. We also must learn to hold tightly and without compromise to essential doctrines and essential morality. We also must learn to develop godly convictions concerning the non-essential areas. In fact, that will be the core of the text today is how do we go about developing these godly convictions in matters uh, of dispute? And then finally, we talked about how we must learn to embrace brothers and sisters who develop differing convictions from ourselves. And all of this, in all of this, a careful study of God's word is absolutely necessary. We don't go about developing convictions. We don't go about dis determining what is black and white. We don't go about loving one another apart from the word of God. Uh, the Word of God must always inform and instruct and guide us in our living, right? We, we don't simply have conversations with one another. We study the Word of God. This week, Paul's going to continue on this same subject about gray areas, matters of indifference. Um, the emphasis this week will be on the development of godly convictions and the living out of those godly convictions for the glory of God. There's a great quote that maybe we need to hang over all of our study of Romans chapter 14. It's oftentimes attributed to Augustine or Augustine, depending on where you went to school. Uh, he didn't really say it, or at least he wasn't the first one to say it, but we'll go ahead and chalk it up to him. He said this, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. I like that. It's kind of where we're going with all this. I think that's faithful to Romans chapter 14. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. So I want to read 
with you today, all of Romans chapter 14. We're going to study closely uh, verses 5 through verse 12 today. But I want you to see the whole thing because it really is one big thought. This is what God's word says in Romans chapter 14. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat and gives thanks to God. For, one does, for not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord, both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you, again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we all will stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another any more, but rather determine this, not to put a stumbling block or an obstacle in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of your food, if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. Let's pray together. God, help us today as we study your word uh, to see clearly what is black and white in your word and to hold tightly to those things. And help us to see clearly what is gray in your word. And help us to develop godly convictions in those areas. Guide us. Open our eyes. Help us to understand. And we pray that you develop godly convictions in us and help us to live them out faithfully as a service to you. And God, I pray that as we do that, that we'll love one another in the process. And that the one who eats and the one who does not eat will do so unto you together for your glory. And that we won't go on judging one another, condemning one another, 
holding each other with contempt, but we will love one another as you have taught us to love, as you have shown yourself to us in giving your own son to die for us. Lord, we want to be a people who live for you. And so we pray that you conform us to the image of Christ more and more today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So you see that this is a lot like last week, right? And I hope that last week spurred some conversations at the lunch table or maybe at the office or maybe uh, in your family as to what are the black and white areas and what are the gray areas and how do we deal with those and how do we love each other when we come to different opinions. And today and next week and the week after that will help us uh, as we think through these things. So I'm glad you came back even through the snow and ice. I'm glad that you're here and pray that God will open our eyes to, uh, to see truth from his word today. Look what it says in verse 5. This is where we start. He says, one person regards one day above another, and another regards every day alike. This seems to be the second of the gray areas that Paul is going to address uh, with the church at Rome. The first one was a matter of diet. Do I eat meat, or do I eat vegetables only? Which one should I do? Which one must I do? How am I going to answer that question? Now it seems that he's talking about days, festivals and Sabbaths and things like that. Remember, part of what's going on behind the scenes of all of this is that there is a tension between Christians who came from a Gentile background who know nothing about festivals and Sabbaths and special days and then other Christians who came from a Jewish background who had grown up all the time observing a festival or a day or a Sabbath. And so some of that is coming from their background. Um, so he says, what, what do we do with the guy? One, one holds every day alike and another observes festivals and Sabbaths and things like that. So the question is essentially, are some days more holy than others? Or, all, or are all days equally holy? And I want us to see it that way. It's not as if one group is saying, this day is special, and another group is saying, no day is special. That doesn't seem to be the case at all. It's not as if they're saying, no day matters, no day is holy unto the Lord, every day is equally uh, unrighteous or unholy. It's rather one group saying, these certain days are especially holy, and the other group is saying, every day is equally holy. We should honor God with every day, not just some days. Does that make sense to you? So here's the difference of opinion. So how can a strict, a strict Sabbath observer and a non-Sabbath observer get together in a local church? How can they come to some kind of agreement where they say, okay, you're going, to, you're going to observe the festivals and the moons and the Sabbaths, and I am not, and we don't have to hate each other. We don't have to say that one of us is a Christian and one of us isn't. We can agree on these things and say, you do that, and I'll do this, because this is a secondary matter. So Paul here at the beginning of verse 5 is introducing the second of these gray areas that has to do with the calendar. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. And then he gives us this huge principle at the end of verse 5 when he says, each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. This is one of the keys to this whole chapter. It means that each one of us, each individual believer in Jesus Christ, is responsible for the development of convictions for ourselves. Does that make sense to you? It means, it means that we don't just do something because we've always been told to do it. It, it, doesn't just mean, it means that we don't just do something because everybody else around us does it. Uh, and on the flip side, it means that we don't just not do something because everyone around us doesn't do it. Or we've always been told not to do it. That each one of us must be fully convinced in his own mind. So, 
if I'm going to eat meat, I want to think about that. I want to be fully convinced that I should eat meat. And if I'm not going to eat the meat, if I'm going to eat only vegetables, then I want to think through that and really process it and really study God's word and be in fellowship with other believers and come to a firm conviction that I should eat only vegetables. In other words, I don't just want to mindlessly make these decisions. And I don't just want to go with the crowd that is around me. Paul says each one of us must be fully convinced in his own mind. And if we're going to do that, it's going to require some work. If we are going to be fully convinced in our own mind about these matters of secondary importance, then it's going to take some work. We're going to have to think. Oh, boy, we don't like that, do we? We we would rather someone just tell us what to do. Wouldn't it be easier if I could just stand up here and say, eat the vegetables, only the vegetables? Welcome to First Baptist Church. We eat vegetables here. No one would come to our fellowships and potlucks. Or if I said, welcome to First Baptist Church, we only eat bacon here. All bacon all the time. Maybe that would draw a crowd. Who knows? What I'm saying to you is that's not the way it works. That's not what Paul does. Never in chapter 14 does he say, eat only vegetables. Eat all the meat you want. Never does he take a position on these things because he's not dealing with the conclusions. The problem in this chapter is not that people have come to different conclusions, right? He never says you must eat vegetables or you must eat meat or you must observe the days or you must not observe the days. He only says you must love one another even when you disagree on matters like this. That's what he's getting at. And so so we're going to have to think through it. We're going to have to think hard about it. We're going to have to pray about it, right? We we don't just want to make this decision with our own logic and our own reason. We want to go to God and say, all right, God, here's, here's the situation that I'm struggling with. Give me some direction here. Do I eat meat? Or do I eat only vegetables? Do I read the King James Version or do I read the New American Standard Version? Do I read the message or do I read the Living Bible? What what about it, God? Can I watch the movie? Do I watch movies at all or do I not watch any movies? Do I watch this movie or do I watch that movie? All of these things, we can't just mindlessly go through. We need to think about it. We need to pray about it. We need to study God's word because uh, these matters of uh, indifference, these gray areas are gray because the Bible doesn't speak directly to them. That doesn't mean that the Bible doesn't speak indirectly to those situations, right? The Bible constantly lays out principles that we must be applying in these gray areas. So we must, if we're going to make informed decisions, if we're going to come to informed opinions, if we're going to develop godly convictions, we must be studying God's word and taking these principles and applying them to the gray areas. So we got to think, we got to pray, we got to study, and it would be helpful if we talked about it a little bit. It would be helpful if I said to someone, a fellow brother or sister in Christ, said, you know what, I'm thinking about going to see this movie. Or, you know what, I'm thinking about buying a new Bible. Or, you know what, I'm thinking about whatever it is. What do you think about this? But that's got to be only a part of this process of developing the firm convictions. That's, that's got to be only a part of the process of being fully convinced in our own minds. We want to think through everything. We want to develop godly convictions. John Stott says it this way. Paul is not encouraging mindless behavior. We like mindless behavior, right? What's mindless behavior look like? Who cares about movies? Who cares about translation? Who cares? I'll just do whatever feels good in the moment and I'll do it. Paul is not encouraging that kind of loose living. He's not encouraging mindless behavior, nor, John Stott says, is he friendly to unexamined tradition. 
on the other side, he says, he's, he's not friendly to this position that says, I don't play cards because my dad didn't play cards and my granddad didn't play cards and his granddad before him didn't play cards, or I don't dance because I'm a Baptist. I've always been a Baptist. I never have examined the scripture. I've never thought about it. I've never prayed about it. I've never talked about it with another believer. But by golly, somebody told me at one point, don't dance, and so I don't dance. And I think a lot of us live in that kind of area in a lot of matters of indifference, a lot of these gray areas. We don't know why we do what we do, but we are sure convinced we shouldn't do it. That's not what he's talking about here. He says, be, be fully convinced in your own mind. One person, one person eats, one person doesn't. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. One person observes their days, one person doesn't. Each one must be fully convinced in his own mind. So we are responsible for the development of conviction for ourselves. For ourselves. And this is going to take work. Look what he says next in verse 6. He says, he who observes the day, observes it for the Lord. And he who eats does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat and gives thanks to God. What stands out to you in that verse? For the Lord, for the Lord, thanks to God, thanks to God, right? So see what's going on here? We've got guys on two ends of the spectrum. We've got one guy who eats and one guy who doesn't. And the guy who eats is eating for the Lord, and he's giving thanks to God, right? You get this picture, right? God, thank you for this bacon. And I'm going I'm to eat, eat it for your glory. For your glory, I'm going to consume this bacon, and I'm going to delight not in it but in you as I partake, right? So one guy eats, and he eats for the Lord, and he gives thanks to God. And the other guy has his plate full of vegetables. And he says, God, thank you for these vegetables. Thank you that you've provided plants who will grow up out of the ground and provide these things for me to eat. And I'm going to eat these vegetables for your glory. And I'm going to not eat the meat for your glory. You catch what's going on here? Both of these guys are motivated by the same thing, right? The, the intent of their heart is exactly the same. The one guy exercising this freedom for the glory of God with thanksgiving to him. The other guy restricting his freedom for the glory of God and giving thanks to him. And so why are they at odds with each other? They shouldn't be, right? They shouldn't be at odds with each other because they are both motivated by service to the king. It seems that in this verse, Paul is getting at the importance of our motivation. The importance of our motivation in living out these convictions. In, in other words, each person has come to conclusions. They've developed convictions. And they're acting out those convictions in service to the Lord. And even though their opinions and their actions are quite different from one another, they can still get along. They can still be friends because what binds them together is that they are serving the Lord with their actions. One scholar said, this is why... We can not only tolerate, but we can welcome and embrace brothers and sisters who have different opinions. Because although they have different practices, we're both sincerely living for the Lord. So if you're going to eat the meat, and you're fully convinced in your mind, and you're doing it for the Lord, go for it. And if you're going to eat only vegetables, and you're fully convinced in your own mind, and you're doing it for the Lord, go for it. In this room today, I want to say that if you're going to read the King James Version, and you're fully convinced in your own mind, and you're doing it for the Lord with thanksgiving, go for it. <laughs> and if you're going to read the message, or the New American Standard, or any other translation, and you're fully convinced in your own mind, and you're doing it for the Lord, and you're thankful to Him for it, go for it. 
You see how this works in matters of secondary importance? We do not say the same thing in black and white areas. We do not say, you want to murder your wife? You're fully convinced in your own mind? You're doing it for the Lord? Go for it. That's not the way it works in those matters. There's never, never an opportunity for us to do that. It's, we can never say, oh, you think Jesus is only one way to the Father? One of many roads? You're fully convinced in your own mind? And you're preaching that message for the Lord? Go for it. No, we don't, we don't say that in those kind of matters. But in these gray areas, we can say that. And we can get along together in saying that. That's what Paul is talking about here. 1 Corinthians 10.31 is instructive in this, in this area as well. This is another text uh, where Paul is dealing with a similar, similar kind of uh, frustration within the church. Similar kind of tension about, should we do this, should we not do this? What do we do when we come to different conclusions? And in 1 Corinthians 10.31 he says this. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Right? Whatever it is that you're doing, your motivation for doing it should be for the glory of God. Should be our motivation for all of living. And if it is, and one person's doing one thing for the glory of God, and another person is doing another thing for the glory of God, and neither one of them are contradicting scripture, blaspheming God in the process, then we can dwell under the same roof in the same fellowship and have differing opinions. John MacArthur said of this verse, before God... It is not a matter of observance or non-observance in these matters. It's not a matter of observance or non-observance. It's a matter of intent. Look what he says in that verse. He says, he who observes the day, observes it for the Lord. And he who eats, does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who does not eat, for the Lord he does not eat, and gives thanks to God. In verse 7, he develops it a little further when he says, for not one of us lives for himself, and not one of us dies for himself. Now some people take this verse to mean that no man is an island and, and they use it to talk about the importance of community. That, that we don't exist just unto ourselves but we exist in this community and our lives impact the people around us. Now hear me clearly. We're going to get to that. We're going to get to that when it comes to these gray matters. What about my brother or sister? What about the brother who might be caused to stumble by the things that we do? That's part of why I've been reading the whole chapter to you each time we study it. Because I want you to know that we'll get to that. But what I want you to see here is that the immediate context of this verse is not about our sense of community. It's not about what impact our actions might have on the brother or sister. It's not what he's getting at here. Rather, he's saying that when we live... We live in the sight of God, that the decisions we make and the conclusions we come to and the convictions that we develop, we must hold in the sight of God. He is the one that we will answer to at the end of it all. So he says, not one of us lives for himself and not one dies for himself. And that also not only, not only uh, orients us uh, for the vertical nature of all of this, but it also helps rein in a little bit of a misunderstanding of the end of verse 5. Some people take the end of verse 5 when he says each one must be fully convinced in his own mind to say as long as I can rationalize it up here and as long as I can justify it up here, I can do anything I want. Well, that's not what he's teaching here, right? Because he says, ultimately, the things that you rationalize up here, the things that you justify up here, the convictions that you do develop in your own heart, in your own mind, you'll answer to God for those. It's not as if anything goes as long as you can convince yourself in your own mind that it's okay. 
No, we must develop those convictions knowing that one day we will stand before God and answer for those things. We will give an account to God for those things that we just, we give an account to God for eating the meat or eating the vegetable, reading the King James or reading the message. We'll give an account to God. And so Paul is trying to orient us vertically here as we think about these things. And then he develops it a little further, really giving the theological foundation for all of this in verse 8 when he says, For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. This is the theological foundation of all that Paul is talking about here. First thing you need to see is that we belong to God. We are the Lord's. You know what that means? That means you're not your own. That means you belong to him and not to yourself. You know what else it means? It means you're not each other's. You belong to him and not to each other primarily. We'll talk about how we do have accountability to each other later on. But here he's talking about this vertical relationship. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Paul says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. You've been bought with a price. And what was that price? It's the death and burial and resurrection of the Son of God. You don't belong to yourself anymore. You've been purchased by the blood of Jesus. You've been bought as, a, as an act of grace. You've been bought and you don't belong to yourself anymore. You belong to him and therefore you will answer to him because he is Lord of all, both of the dead and of the living. So if you're living, you're living for him. And if you're dying, you're dying for him. The point of that is all of your life belongs to him. You know what that means? That means even the movies that you watch belong to him. That means even the translation that you read belongs to him. That means even the places that you go belong to him. That means all of these decisions, all of these convictions, all of these opinions, all of these matters of living, they all belong to him because he is Lord of it all by virtue of his death, burial, and resurrection. Okay? So Jesus lays claim over all of it. Therefore, if he is my Lord, I want to do all things for him. I want to live in all of these things for him. Not for myself, not, not for my neighbor primarily, but for him. I want to live in his view in it all. All right, in verse 10, he gets some more of the, the application of all of this. When he says, but you, this is very pointed. Uh, it's, it's, it's singular. It's, it's like he's pointing a finger at someone, and he says, but you. And you need to see that finger pointing at you today. I said that last week, that we do a great job of studying the Bible and applying it to the guy sitting next to us. Or maybe even, maybe even better yet, we do a great job of reading the Bible and applying it to the guy who didn't make it today. Who stayed home because it was too slick. And we say, oh, I wish he was here to hear this. No, listen to the word of God say, but you. But you. Why do you judge your brother? Or you, again, if that's not your problem, maybe you. You, why do you regard your brother with contempt? Notice he's talking here about brothers. He, he's not talking about us having this attitude toward outsiders. He's saying this is something that's going on in the church. Why, why do you judge your brother? 
He's your brother for crying out loud. Why do you judge him? And that's a strong word that he's using there for judge. It's not a, it's not a matter of accountability. It's not you looking at your brother and saying, hey, you know what? I think, I think maybe some things would go differently in your life. I really think you should make some different decisions. It's not that kind of word. It's you looking at your brother and saying, you're going to hell because you read that translation. You're going to hell. You, you can't be a Christian and watch that movie. You can't be a Christian and drink that. You can't be a Christian and eat that. You're going to hell as evidenced by your decision making. He says, why? You. Why do you judge your brother? And then he says, or, or you. Why do you regard your brother with contempt? We talked about that word last week. Why do you look at your brother and say, good for nothing little baby Christian. You knew what you bought him, little baby Christian. Ooh, ooh, know nothing. Haven't learned anything yet. Reading the message. Why do we think we can do that to each other? Why do we think we can look at each other like that? Like that's our job. Like it's our job to judge our brothers. Like it's our job to hold our brothers in contempt. Paul says, it's not your job. It's not your job. Look what he says. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. You know who's going to do this? You know whose job it is to do that? It's God's job. It's God's job to do that. It's God's job to teach us and to tell us and to declare whether we were right or wrong in these convictions we came to. And he will. He will. We will all, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Now, oh man, this, this may get on a rabbit that we don't need to chase for too long. This, is, this judgment of God that he's talking about here is not the great white throne judgment where the distinction is made between believers and unbelievers. This is not the judgment where some people go to hell and some people go to heaven based on whether they have repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus Christ, whether their name is in the Lamb's book of life or not. That's one judgment seat of God, the great white throne judgment. It's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is what scholars refer to as the Bema, judgment seat of Christ where believers who have been saved by God's grace, who have, who have been rescued and redeemed, their names are written in, in the Lamb's Book of Life, believers who are going to heaven will stand, will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the beam of judgment seat of Christ, and will give an account for the life that we lived. Uh, there's Paul, Paul uses a picture uh, at one point about um, straw and wood and hay, or maybe this is Jesus who uses this picture. That, that these things will pass through judgment by fire and some of them will be consumed, but, but gold and jewels and things like that, those won't be consumed. In other words, even as believers, we'll give an account for the way that we live. That means even as believers, we will, we will give an account for what we eat and what we drink and where we went and what we did, those kind of things. Not, not that we might go to hell. It's not what's going on here. But how we lived for Christ under his lordship in our lives. So, so he says, you will all. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. We'll all stand there. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall praise God. And then in verse 12, he really gets to it when he says, so then each one of us, that makes it universal, all of us, all of us, all of us as believers, that makes it personal, we will give an account. We will give an account of ourselves to God. Which means the verdict is God's verdict and not ours. That means when I live, I want to live for him. Knowing that I'm going to answer to him. And when I watch you living, 
when I watch you living, I want to remember that one of these days you also are going to stand and you're going to give, give an account to him and not to me. It's not, it's not my job to be that judge for you. He will do that. And so I want to say, all right, we're going to have a difference of opinion here, but we're both living for the Lord. You're eating the bacon for the Lord. I'm eating the vegetables for the Lord. We're fully convinced in our own minds. We clearly have come to a different conclusion. And at the end of the day, God will, God will tell us and not, it's not my job. It's not my job. One scholar says, all petty squabbling and resentment are insignificant when seen from the perspective of Judgment Day. All petty squabbling and resentment are insignificant when seen from the perspective of Judgment Day. Think about that. Think about the things that we argue about in here. Think about the things that we, as a family of God, get all up in arms about when we see someone doing something that we don't agree with. How many of those things are truly significant at the, at the last judgment? How many, of those things, how many of those things will really be a big deal on that last day? Yeah, prob- probably not. We're probably not going to have a huge debate on the last day about translation. In fact, my, my Hebrew professor at Union used to tell my Greek professor at Union not to worry because when we got to heaven, he would do the translating for him. <laughs> As if God speaks Hebrew and not Greek. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say God doesn't speak English. And so maybe none of these translations that we're reading are the very best. You get where we're going with this, right? We fight about things that don't matter at all. And we sometimes fight to the death about things that don't matter at all. And we sometimes let matters that should be fought about to the death go by like they're no big deal. The The church is an expert at majoring in minors and ignoring majors. And this text should rebuke us, all of us, because we're all guilty of this. We're all guilty of it. There's a story in John's gospel, right at the end of John's gospel, where um, Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's died for our sins. He's been buried. He's been raised from the dead. And he meets with his disciples. He meets with his friends on the seashore, and he has breakfast with them. You remember that? And, and the last time Peter and Jesus really had a moment together, it was, as, it was right after Peter had denied him the third time. Remember this, just before the resurrection, Peter denied Jesus the third time. And as they're moving Jesus from one place to another, one of the gospel writers tells us that they lock eyes. Peter's heart's broken. Peter is essentially disqualified from ministry, right? He's denied the Lord three times. And yet on this seashore, Jesus eats breakfast with him and he says, Peter, come with me. Come with me. And they they walk a little bit away from the other guys. And Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, oh, you know. He says, then feed my sheep. And this process, you remember, goes three times. Same kind of question. There's a little bit difference in words. That's not our point today. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Feed my sheep. And then after that goes on and Peter is restored to ministry, Jesus begins to talk to him about what kind of death he's going to die. He basically says, you lead yourself around. You gird yourself up right now and you lead yourself around right now. But the day is coming when you won't gird you. Someone else will gird you up and they will lead you where you don't want to go. And I don't know exactly what that means, but somehow Jesus is telling Peter about the kind of death that he's going to die by. And Peter's kind of shocked about this and a little bit taken aback. And it seems like they're saying that as they're walking back toward the rest of the group. And it seems like John, the son of Zebedee, comes walking by. And Peter Peter says to Jesus, well, tell me about the kind of death that guy's going to die. You told me about mine. What about him? And Jesus says this to him. He says, what's it to you? What's it to you? If I want him to live until I return, what's it to you? You follow me. 
You catch what's going on there and how that's a parallel? We live a lot of our lives saying, well, what about him? What about him and what he's doing, Lord? He, he saw that movie. He drank that drink. He wore those clothes. What about him, Lord? And I wonder if some of us need to hear Jesus say to us what Jesus said to Peter. What's that to you? You follow me. He'll follow me. You follow me. I want you to hear that today. Follow him. Follow him. Live for him. Develop godly convictions under his authority and live them out for his glory. R. Kent Hughes, a scholar, has some great things to say about this. He said, there is room. And I want there to be room. There is room in Christ church for you. Whether you wear wingtips or sandals. Whether you walk to church or ride in a Rolls Royce. Whether you powder your nose or not. Whether you dance or not. Whether you drink or refrain. Whether you watch TV or abstain. Whether you use my translation or not. There is room for you in the church. And I want there to be room for you here at First Baptist Church. In matters of secondary importance, when we disagree, I want, you to, I want there to be room for you. And then he tells this story. This is good. He says, the pastor under whom I served for almost 10 years liked to tell about a play he saw, which portrayed an intense conflict between a father and a son. The point came when the father and son agreed to part. In the middle of the night, the son had trouble sleeping, so he went down to the kitchen to fix himself a sandwich. And there was his father, who couldn't sleep either. After they had fixed their sandwiches, they began to reminisce about the past. About years in Little League, about a great hunting trip, about their swimming together, and about their fishing trips. As some needed healing was taking place, the son said, Dad, do you remember the time we were out on the lake in that green boat? His father said, the boat was blue, son. The son said, no, it was green. The father said, you're mistaken, it was blue. Green, blue, green, blue. And as his son departed, never to return. Some things just don't matter. We may allow, may we allow God to give us wisdom to see what is essential and what is not. Oh man, how many people have walked out of this church over green or blue? How many of us don't speak to one another anymore over green or blue? We're not, we're not talking about what color the boat is. We're not talking about whether there is a boat. There are some things that we should part ways over. And there are some things that are not worth it. And I want us to know the difference. We're not, we're not alone in this struggle. This was always been the struggle. Some of the greatest preachers that have ever lived have had this struggle. I read a story this week about Charles Spurgeon. That was a hero of the faith, right? And another famous preacher during that same era whose name was Joseph Parker. Publicly. Publicly, Charles Spurgeon rebuked, condemned, judged Joseph Parker because Parker went to the theater. Parker liked to go see plays. He went to the theater. Parker then, in return, wrote an article, a letter to the editor maybe, and he condemned Spurgeon because Spurgeon smoked cigars. Some of you might not ever read Spurgeon again now that you know that. What a shame that would be if you threw out all of Spurgeon's work because you know he smoked cigars. And these two went at it, fighting over theater and cigars, two heroes of the faith. 
silliness, right? We laugh about it now, but we're right in the middle of it. Right even now, in this church, we are fighting over green and blue. Cigars and theaters and clothes and things that don't matter. What if we could get to the place where we said, you know what? You do it for the Lord. I'll do it for the Lord. We'll, we'll agree on what is most important. And we'll have some tolerance and some acceptability on matters that are secondary in importance. So application number one, develop firm personal Christian convictions in the gray matters. Develop firm personal Christian convictions in the gray matters, and you must do this for yourself. One scholar said to go along with what others do simply because they do it without being convicted for oneself can be a dangerous practice. Don't just do it or not do it because your dad said it. Don't just do it or not do it because that's what most of the people around you are doing or not doing. Think about it. Think it through. Develop the conviction for yourself. Study the biblical principles that are at stake. Think through the community impact, which we'll talk more about over the next few weeks. Talk to wise, trusted brothers and sisters. Pray to God that he would give you peace and direction as you develop these convictions. Here are three questions that might be really helpful, three really practical questions. One, can I thank God for this? Whatever it is, can I thank God for it? Can I thank God for that plate of food? Can I thank God for that movie? Can I thank God for that drink? Can I thank God for these clothes? There are probably some that you can't. There may be some of those things that you can't thank God for. Can I thank God for this? Secondly, can I do this for the Lord? There are some things that you cannot do for the Lord. My, my youth pastor used to, used to talk a little bit about, well, would you, what would you think if Jesus came back while you were doing this? I get it, and it was shocking to hear that, but Jesus is there. And we're not just hoping he doesn't come back. He's with us when we're doing it. Can I do this unto the Lord? That's a good question. I think sometimes we ask a bad question. I think when we're considering a gray matter, we say, should a Christian blank? Should a Christian blank? I don't think that's the best, the best way to answer the question because if we answer it that way, then we're making this blanket statement about all Christians. Should all Christians blank? And that's where we'll get ourselves in trouble. If we have these convictions and we say, a Christian should read this, a Christian should eat that, a Christian should do that, then we're applying it to everyone. So I don't think that's the best way to answer, ask the question when you're considering something. Maybe better would be to say, as a Christian, as a Christian, should I? As a Christian, should I do this or that? As a Christian, should I? Because I want to hold these convictions as personal convictions. Because they're different from laws. Laws are not personal. Rules are not personal. Rules apply to everyone, but convictions apply to you. And we'll talk in a couple weeks about the danger of trying to apply your convictions to everyone else. Or try, yeah, trying to get people to line up with you and not follow their own convictions. So ask yourself, can I thank God for this? Can I do this to the Lord? And as a Christian, should I do this? Develop firm personal Christian convictions in gray matters. Secondly, Live out those convictions for the glory of God. It, once you have uh, been fully convinced in your own mind, then do it for God's glory. Be fully convinced and stand there and do what you're doing for the glory of God. Eat the bacon for the glory of God. Eat the vegetables for the glory of God, knowing that you will give an account to him and not to the guy sitting next to you. You'll give an account to him, and so do it for him. Now, this is tricky. This is so tricky. This whole thing is tricky. 
Because what I'm saying is, develop the personal conviction in the matter that's gray, and then stand there like it's black and white. Right? If you're fully convinced in your own mind that you should eat only vegetables, and I'm saying then eat the vegetables, then you're treating that thing like, for you, it's black and white. But as you do that, you've got to recognize that even though for you it may be a black and white issue, it is not in itself a black and white issue. I want to develop these convictions, and I want to live them out for the glory of God, but I want to recognize this is my conviction, and even though I'm going to hold to it firmly, I'm not going to, I'm not going to throw another brother under the bus because he doesn't. This is tricky, and that leads to the third application. First, develop the conviction. Second, live out the conviction. And third, stop judging one another on these matters of conviction, but rather accept one another in the Lord. Love one another. Respect one another. John MacArthur says our responsibility is not to judge, not to despise, not to criticize, or in any other way belittle our brothers and sisters in Christ. We will not be called on by our Lord to give an account of the sins and shortcomings of others, but rather each one of us shall give an account of himself to God. So develop the conviction, hold the conviction, and then love others who come to different convictions on secondary gray matters. It's a whole different talk when we're talking about primary issues. But that's not what this text is. This text is about. So, clearly, this is a word for the church. Clearly, this is application for people who are following Jesus and seeking to live for him. But there are people in this room who are not. So the application for you is not about conviction. The application for you today is not about opinion. Developing convictions is, the application for you is not about food or drink or clothes or any other thing. The application that I want to make for you today is repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. Then we'll talk about the rest of this. Then the rest of this will make some sense. But until you know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, nothing else matters. So repent and believe in him today. He is good and he will save you by his grace. Let's stand together and pray. God, we do want to pray for people in this room who are far from you, who are lost and dead in their trespasses and sins. God, we pray that you come to them, that in a, in a way that only you can, and by your grace that you would teach them about their sin and convict them, break them, and then in the brokenness, God, we pray that you would turn their eyes to Jesus, that they would see him dying as their substitute that they would see him rising as their victor. That they would see him as the only one who can rescue them. The only one who can save them. God, I pray that you give them faith to believe. To trust in Jesus Christ and his work. And not in themselves. I pray that you give them repentance to turn away from sin and to walk toward you in righteousness. I pray that you show them grace and mercy for your own glory and save them pray for your people who are in this room today, brothers and sisters in Christ, that you will help us to develop firm personal convictions in matters of secondary importance. I pray that you teach us what it looks like to live those out for you and for your glory. And we pray that you'll give us love for one another, even when we disagree, that you would give us love for one another, that we would embrace and welcome and accept one another. God, I pray that you will forgive us when we fight over things that don't 
eternally matter. I pray that you forgive us when we sound just like that father and son, arguing about the color of the boat and storming out never to speak again. Oh God, we don't, we don't, have, t- we don't have time to fight about stuff like that. This is not the time to fight about things like that. Teach us that. Teach us that for your own glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen.